are in Corinthians. And today we are going to get cross-dressing and male and female relationships and just all sorts of good stuff. I post these things on my website and then cross-post them to Facebook and Stitcher and iTunes. So I post them a lot of places. And oh, a couple, three weeks back, when we were talking about Paul and marriage, some gal put a comment on Facebook. I don't think Paul likes women. And I actually Facebook stalked her, and she's, at least from her Facebook trail, quite liberal. And I said, well, I don't think Paul dislikes women so much. As I said last time, that he's sort of expecting the Lord to return any time, and you really ought to be concentrating on getting ready for that rather than romance. And then the other thing I said was, one thing Paul does believe in is sexual roles, which Scripture also teaches. And she said, interesting perspective, thank you for sharing. And that was the last I ever heard of her. And she may continue to listen to my stuff, I have no idea, and, and I'm not speaking against her. But this one we're in tonight is one of those passages. We actually got through 11.1 last time because 11.1 actually goes with the previous chapter. So let's start in 11.2. Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain their traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. So this is one of those passages where Paul believes in sex roles, as do I, and as does Scripture. Some of this is culturally dependent. Let me give you an example. I want to say during the Korean War, the communists put out propaganda that America was sending criminals over to do their fighting because all of the American soldiers had buzz cuts, shortcut hair. And in that culture, prisoners had their hair shaved. So if you saw a man with shaved head, it was because he was a criminal. So what the communists were saying is, these nasty Americans are sending all their criminals over here to do all sorts of nasty things, among which is to fight against us. So some of this is culturally dependent. What is not culturally dependent, and I'm going to take you there for a point of reference, and then with that, we can come back and, and unpack the cultural dependent stuff from the eternal stuff. So if you look in Deuteronomy, and in Deuteronomy 22, and I'll pick it up in verse 5, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord our God. So what Moses is saying is, do not dress so as to confuse genders. 
let me put it another way. I went to Jerusalem when we were in Israel, and we were shopping. And one of us wanted to buy something, and we said, is this appropriate for a man? And the question from the shopkeeper is, what's appropriate in your community? In other words, do women wear this kind of clothing in your community? If so, buying that is appropriate for a woman. If women do not wear that kind of clothing in your community, then it's not, and conversely. So the not mixing, if you will, is culturally dependent. Notice Deuteronomy doesn't say that men will have short hair and women will have long hair. It doesn't say that men will not wear skirts because you'd have real trouble in Scotland and Greece. So there's lots of places where men wear skirts and they are fully masculine and they're no confusion whatsoever. That's the way they dress. In fact, I bought a utilikilt a number of years ago. Had a great time driving across country in my kilt. I get some weird looks when I went into gas stations to fill up. But reading their advertising, the utilikilt is a man's garment. And they have specifically on there, ladies, do not buy these. They are not cut for you. They won't fit you properly. So don't even bother to buy them because you won't be able to wear them. If you want a kilt, go to some place that sells a woman's kilt. So as we go through this 1 Corinthians thing, understand that a lot of this is culture-specific, and it's time-specific. So in that culture at that time, this was the style for men, and this was the style for women. And what Paul is saying is you need to keep them separate. Whatever your society regards as feminine, men shouldn't do. And whatever your society regards as masculine, women shouldn't do. When you get into this, you get into questions, well, can women wear slacks to church? And all sorts of questions like that. And most of those, the answers have been appropriately cultural. So in the United States in the 19th century, women did not wear trousers to church because that was not culturally appropriate. And a woman who did wear trousers to church would be looked on askance, and properly so. In the 21st century, women do wear slacks. You know, cut for women, feminine, and all that kind of stuff, and no confusion, so there's no problem with that as long as you're not cross-dressing. So, separate fashion from base principles as we go through this. The first thing he's saying is there's an order in marriage. So he says, I want you to understand that head of every man is Messiah, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Messiah is God. So what he's saying is there's a hierarchy here. And that, of course, goes back to Genesis 3. And I will take you back there to remind you. And this is, of course, after the inappropriate eating of the forbidden fruit. Let's pick it up at verse 16. So to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread 
till you return to the ground, for out of which you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the first thing to notice there is nobody's cursed. Actually, somebody does get cursed. Who gets cursed? The serpent. Back in verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. So the serpent gets cursed. The man and the woman do not get cursed. And I am strictly reading the words. There is no curse pronounced on either the man or the woman. There are, however, consequences and what I would call markers of mortality. So after we ate of the forbidden fruit, we became mortal. And because we are now mortal, we die, which we were not designed to do. I suspect women were not designed to have difficult childbirths. But as a result of having become mortal, that changed. Men were not designed to have to fight against the ground to get their sustenance. They were supposed to be masters over the earth, and the earth was supposed to yield up its strength to them. You know, you go eat all the fruit in the garden you want. So the man and the woman each get a consequence of disobedience appropriate to their role in the world. So in this economy, woman's role is to bear children. A man's role is to work the field and provide. Obviously, it isn't to say that women don't work and you know, all that kind of stuff, I'm not, but just straight roles. And one of the things it says then is, your husband shall rule over you, and you're not going to like it. I've made him in charge, and you're not going to like it. So Paul now is coming back here, and he is repeating the same thing. There's an order to things. The man is under Messiah. The woman is under the man. Messiah himself is under God. And our society happens to be merit-based. So our societal myth is you can be anything you can do. And if you can do it, you can do it. And so what happens is a woman says, oh, well, I can do this, which she obviously can, but she's out of her role. Have I recently talked to you about the difference between male and female? Let's do that for a second. The difference between male and female is fundamental of the universe, and it has nothing to do with plumbing. Masculine is initiative. Feminine is executive. Let's talk in terms of human biology. The male initiates by giving a seed to the female. How much actual material does the man contribute to the baby? The amount of actual material in the sperm that fertilizes the egg is minuscule. And in fact, the only reason the material is there is because you need something to carry the information. So all the sperm is is a medium to carry information. And the man provides information to the woman. The woman then takes that information and she executes. She's the one that eats the food, grows the baby, all that kind of stuff. In God's economy, God is masculine, the earth is feminine. Adama is a feminine word. So God initiates, the earth executes. And the problem we have as a species is humanity is feminine to God's masculine. So all of humanity, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, whatever, are feminine to God's masculine. 
Now, within humanity, we have men who are masculine-feminine, and we have women who are feminine-feminine. But God initiates and humanity responds. Humanity executes. Humanity makes things happen. That's what we're designed to do. So what we have happening is women are double feminine, if you will, which means that they are really good at executing things, doing things, making things happen. That's what they're designed to do. So God initiates sex roles because what we have today is women are pushing more and more into the executive role and men are just sort of sitting back and letting it happen. And they're making it happen outside of their role, which is pushing men who are masculine feminine and marginalizing them. So what God does is he sets up in the Bible roles and he says, do not confuse your roles. And clear back here in Genesis 3, it says to the woman, your husband is going to rule over you and you're going to hate it. And the reason you're going to hate it is you're going to be able to look at the stuff he does and say, I can do that. And I can do it better than he does. Now, one of my favorite internet memes is you have this picture of a coal mine. And you got a bunch of coal miners hunched over working machines with headlights on their head and their dirty faces and their working machines digging coal. And the thing says, women didn't enter the workplace until we got air-conditioned office parks. And there's some truth in that because when men's work was heavy work, the fact that men are bigger and stronger than women are meant that women are not really well suited to being hunched over in a coal mine all day. They're more delicately built. But as our society moves toward anybody can type on a computer keyboard, anybody can do that. So what you wind up doing is you wind up with fewer and fewer jobs that require the physical strength of a male and so you wind up then with confusion in roles. And to remind you back in creation, most of what God did in creation was separation. I mean there's a lot of creation going on, but in the text creation is only mentioned three times. The rest of the days of creation are separation. Separating light from darkness, separating dry ground from the water, separating the waters from above from below separating male from female. And God says over and over and over again in his Torah, the things that I have separated, you do not mix back together. So you don't wear mixed fiber clothing. You don't sow your field with two kinds of seed. You don't plow with an ox and a donkey together. You don't mix things back together that I have separated. And one of those is male and female. Now, with all that background, back to Paul. So what Paul is saying here, first off, is that there's a hierarchy. God, then Messiah, then the man in the family, then the woman in the family. And as I say back in Genesis 3, the woman doesn't like that. And God says right up front, you're not going to like that. But that's the way it is. And the head covering. Paul says that Men should pray with their heads uncovered. Women should pray with their heads covered. So what's the deal with the keeper? What it is, is in the biblical economy, a man with his head covered 
is ashamed. So when David gets run out of town by his son Absalom during the rebellion, he and all of the men with him go up to the Mount of Olives with their heads covered because they have just been run out of town by their son. And in the Psalms, it says, you will go about with your heads covered in shame. It says that in a couple of different Psalms. Well, in that case, David is going out of town in shame because his son has executed a military coup against him and is running out of town. This is speculation on my part, and this may not be correct. I suspect that part of the reason for the keeper is they are in exile. That isn't something I've looked up. So if it's wrong, I'm wrong, and I freely apologize to anybody who can tell me I'm wrong. But all of the references to having your head covered that I have found in Scripture have to do with being ashamed. David, when he's run out of town, uh, God talking to Israel and says, I will cover your head in shame. A couple of places in Psalms, uh, if you look it up. So do with that whatever you like. Back to Paul. What Paul is saying is, a man should pray with his head uncovered. A woman should pray with her head covered. And I suspect that has to do with the man being over the woman in the economy. We finished up in verse 5. So 5 is the middle of a sentence. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. Biblically, when does a woman shave her head? The captive who is taken in battle has her head shaved while she mourns for her people. If you look at some of the pictures from World War II, one of the things that happened after the Germans were driven out of France, the local townspeople rounded up the women who had collaborated or cohabited with the Germans and shaved their heads. So it's a mark of shame. So the idea of a shaved head woman is pretty universally a shameful kind of a thing, except in the case of the beautiful captive when it's a sign of mourning. Verse 6, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. If she's not going to cover her head, she should look like a man. But it's disgraceful for a woman to look like a man, so she should cover her head. That's sort of the argument, if you will. And by the way, one other thing to keep firmly in mind, remember how this letter started. The letter started with division and fraction and prideful factions in the church. Remember, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and I don't eat with sinners and that kind of stuff. It is entirely possible that you also have women who are factionalizing within the church. It is not necessarily the case at all that the factions are limited to men. And you may have some proto-feminists in the church, if you will, and again, he's responding to a letter that we haven't seen, so I suspect that one of the possibilities is somebody said, well, what do we do about these gals that come in and won't cover their heads and wear short shorts and whatever the cultural equivalent of that kind of thing is. That's also a possibility that's being discussed here. But we don't have the letter, so I can't tell you. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman 
is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Both of those are true. Uh, Genesis 2. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I'm not sure what to do with that. I have seen people speculate on that. And in fact, it's probably more than speculation. Because if you read Genesis 9 and the book of Jude, in both of those books, explicitly in the book of Jude, sort of hinted in the book of Genesis, you have this idea that angels lusted after the daughters of men and bred with them, and from those you get giants or mighty men or whatever. That fairly explicit in the book of Jude, it is only implied in the book of Genesis, the Benai Elohim. So it's entirely possible that Paul is making reference to something like that, which is to say, if the woman is going around with her hair loose and all that kind of stuff, she may tempt an angel to do something with her that an angel ought not to do. So that's the only thing I can do with that, okay? (laughs) From a scriptural point of view. So now we're all the way down to verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And notice this, if anyone is inclined to be contentious. That's the thing that sort of triggered me early on. We may actually have some feminism going on in this church, and you have some of the contention that we have in our churches over this very subject. The idea that women have long hair and men have short hair, again, that is culturally dependent. For example, if you look at uh, Chinese, the men would have a pigtail that long, and the longer the pigtail, the more honorable the man. Look at the Spartans. They had long, shoulder-length hair. I mean, they bound it up when they went into battle, but nobody would suggest that they weren't masculine. So a lot of that is cultural. The only mention that God makes of hair is there are circumstances when the head is shaved. Nazarite vow, for example, when you clear a vow. The leper, when he's cleansed. And the priest is told to bind up his hair. In other words, don't have your hair flying around when you come into the tabernacle. I remember this, but I was looking for it and didn't find it. It said something about priests having their hair neatly trimmed, or words to that effect. I have a memory of that, but I was sort of looking for it and didn't find it. So anyway, so much for head coverings and men and women and prayer and all that kind of stuff. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
Anybody have a different translation of that? Uh, another translation, those who are approved may become evident. So the idea of factions is one of the things that it does is the cream rises to the top. And if you don't have separation, it's hard to tell the difference. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a good translation. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So apparently what's going on is they're doing something like what we do, meeting on whatever day they meet on. I suspect it's probably Shabbat. And they're having a meal. But nobody's sharing. So the people who have a lot bring their own lunch and have a nice lunch and sit down with wine and all that kind of thing and have a great lunch. And the poor people don't have anything. And that's the sense of the verse. And he implies that they seem to think that they are engaging in the Lord's Supper when they do this. So again, talking about factionalism, talking about class differences within the church, people flaunting wealth differences by what they eat and drink in church and not sharing and those kinds of things. So the whole thing bespeaks a lack of fellowship. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Yeshua, on the night when he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What Paul is saying is the only instructions I gave you about eating and drinking concerned communion. Didn't give you any instructions about lunch. Didn't give you any instructions about any of that other stuff. This is the only instruction I gave you. And if you're going to use eating and drinking as a cause for vision, you're wrong. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. And we think of the word profane as being dirty. It's not what the word means. It means common. Remember, the priest's job is to separate between the holy and the common, or another translation is the holy and the profane. There's nothing inherently bad about profane in that sense. It is simply as opposed to holy. And what Paul is saying is the bread and the cup should be holy, but if you come and take them in an unworthy manner, you make them common. 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So if you are not partaking of this with the proper attitude, what you wind up then doing is judging yourself. 30. That is why so many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Very common teaching in both Christianity and Judaism is that the sins that you judge of your own are sins that God does not have to mess with. In other words, if you realize that you have sinned, you examine yourself, you repent, which is to say, you say, I'm not going to do that anymore, I am sorry, I repent, and you ask for forgiveness, then that is a sin that God does not have to deal with because you have done so. It's the sins that you deny that God will eventually have to deal with. Verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. I don't know what the other things are, because we don't have access to his letter. So that concludes men and women and communion, or Lord's Supper, or whatever you care to call it. Next time we'll do spiritual gifts, which is always great fun. One other thing that I will just very quickly say, going back to verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As you all are very familiar with, the covenant is ratified by the shedding of blood. And Yeshua's blood is the blood that was shed to ratify the new covenant. Having said that, we are not yet living under the new covenant. The blood has been shed, the covenant has been cut, we have been given an earnest, a marker if you will, of our inheritance to come, and that's a Holy Spirit, but we are not at this point living under the new covenant. And we just finished going through Hebrews, where in Hebrews it says that the old covenant is obsolete and passing away, and the tense there is not passed away, but in the process of passing away. So the new covenant will not be fully in effect until Israel is reunited, Joseph and Judah, and until Israel is back in the land. And I personally believe that the Messiah will have come when we start living under the new covenant. But that's genealogy. So those of your Sunday friends who say, I'm living in the new covenant, I will gently suggest that they are not quite correct. Good attitude, the timing is not quite right. <laughs>